Welcome back to Merendiando, part of Radio Luna Theater. To kick off season seven, we have the talented, award-winning director, actor, writer, and dramaturg Sohil Parsa. Sohil Parsa is a co-founder and former artistic director of Modern Times Stage Company with a career that spans 32 years and two continents. His work has been recognized with numerous awards and nominations, celebrating his unique contribution to Canadian theater. He is also the director of Aluna Theater and Modern Times upcoming production of The House of Bernarda Alba. In this episode, we chat with Sohil about some of the questions that have fueled his work over the years, his philosophies around theater directing, and how Lorca's work is inspiring him. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast, Sohil. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I'm quite excited um, about this interview, this this conversation. I call it a conversation, not an interview. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right. It's very exciting to have you. Let's just dive right in. Sohil, when did you know that you were a director? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I was an actor by training back in Iran uh, before I left um, my homeland. So um, it was in, here in Canada that I realized uh, acting seems unlikely for me, given my new challenge of speaking uh, a second language. So I gravitated towards directing in Canada because that was a, a, perhaps it was a very realistic decision because I had a heavy accent. Um, I barely spoke English when I came to this country in 1984. So um, since I love theater, I decided that um, if not acting, I would do something else. And I remember at York University when I was auditioning for to get into New York, to get enrolled at, at York University, they said, you know, because of your accent and, you know, do you think it's going to be some possibilities for you in the future? I said, you know, I love theater. If not acting, I could be a good stage manager, maybe, and possibly a director. So that was it. That was there, you know, and uh, I think uh, it was in my second year at York, I directed a show, a Bertolt Brecht's piece, a man's a man with the student, um, the second year student in acting, all my friends those days, they were all my friends. And there I really got fascinated with directing. And uh, then I realized, okay, that's my, my destiny. That's my direction to be a director. So it was in 1987 that I, yeah, uh, 1987, that's right, that I decided that would be my, my future. It's taken you this far. <laughs> when was the first time you encountered Lorca, the writer, and what attracted you to his work? Wow, yeah, uh, uh, my love for Lorca's plays and poetry goes back to mid-20s, mid-70s, mid 20s, imagine. Mid -70s <laughs> Your 20s, when I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my 20s, <laughs> yeah, in mid-70s when I was a theater student at Tehran University. Um, there that, you know, we had the translations of... Uh, of the three major tragedies, of course, like there was the first thing that the translation, and the first translation we received from Lorca, um, uh, a blood wedding, uh, the House of Bernardo Alba and Yerma. So there I got fascinated with this amazing and remarkable playwright. And I fell in love with, 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 
with him and his universe. Yeah, um, yeah. Look, the theme and the universe of Lorca has always fascinated me. His vast artistic imagination, his unique theatrical style uh, that confronts um, naturalism and his compelling, uh, remarkable uh, female characters. Uh, has always fascinated me. So that was a place that, like back home in Iran, I got familiar with him. And um, I always wanted, as an actor, I wanted to play in his, um, to be an actor in one of his plays. <laughs> I wanted to play Leonardo when I was younger, you know, but I never got a chance to, to play that part. So when I came to Canada, I was seriously thinking uh, since 1989, I founded, co-founded Modern Times Stage Company. I was dreaming to do the three tragedies, the three plays, major tragedies by Lorca. So um, I've managed to do Blood Wedding, and this is the House of Bernardo Alba. And hopefully in the future, I would do uh, Yerma, uh, I hope. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. It's been in your heart for years, oh, yeah. germinating. Absolutely. absolutely. As I say, you know, like is there like a lot of like a strong connection in the Iranian community, in the Iranian artistic community with Lorca. It's very close, very close to, to the uh, Iranian culture, like the whole concept mm-hmm. of the poetic aspect of, of his work um, is really like, you know, it's fascinating to, to many many Iranians and Iranian artists. So yeah, it goes back about around, like I would say, 45 years that I know Lorca. Yeah. And can I ask you a follow-up to that? Like, what is similar do you see, like in the Iranian culture that you just described and the universe of Lorca? Like, what is a similarity, an example of a similarity? Uh, That's interesting. First of all, like, you know, Persian language, Farsi, uh, they call it Farsi (laughs) or Persian is extremely poetic. So um, at the first thing that, that, that happened, like the translation of uh, Lorca's poems by one of the greatest poets of Iran, because he was, he was he knew like Spanish, English, and Germany. So the first translation of, of his uh, poems happened by, by this uh, Iranian poet. And it was like fascinating. Everybody f- f- noticed a lot of similarities in, t- in terms of imagery, in terms of like, you know, um, what do you call it? Um, even culturally, I found it like, you know, they, they found it a lot of similarities and both Blood Wedding and, and Bernard, House of Bernard Alway, these two plays that, you know, that I've been working on. It, it is like associated a lot with the oppression of women about um, the, the society, the societal law, and what is happening, you know, what is happening in Spain in those days and what was happening in Iran, there was a lot of similarities, especially about like, you know, the women's character and the struggles that the women character, the, the women, the female characters are going through. There's a lot of similarities uh, between like the, the Iranian society and, and, and the Spanish society at the time of um, Lorca those days in the early mm. Uh, yeah, 20th century. Yeah, that's beautiful. In a previous interview, you have said that you there is a great tradition of translation in Iran. And you mentioned that like when you first encountered Lorca, it was through these really great translations that you really connected with. So I'm just wondering, what do you mean by that? Like this great tradition of translation, I'd love to hear more. Uh, anything you have to share about that? Yeah, like, you know, what I mean by the great tradition of translation, most of the important um, Western plays by the Western playwrights have been translated into Farsi, including Lorca. So from 
Shakespeare to like, you know, like a classic classics, like Shakespeare and Moliere uh, comes to the contemporary 20th century uh, playwrights like, you know, Beckett, UNESCO, Harold Pinter, uh, Kenzie Williams, um, Arthur Miller. This, and as an example, Lorca, it's been translated like, you know, vastly, like uh, not just like, you know, one or two translation. For example, the translation of uh, the House of Bernard Alba, at least we have like five different translations of this play by five different mm. uh, translators, each a bit different. Everybody has a different approach. Mm. So yeah, exactly. Like, you know, when, when we look at the translation of, of um, Bernardo, House of Bernardo Alba in, 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 in English, uh, we have at least like five, six different translations. You know, same thing is mm -hmm. happening in Iran. So that's why, that's what I meant by, is a, it's a great tradition of translations that's been like, you know, uh, a long tradition. So that's what I meant by it. Yeah, we have almost uh, a translation of every single important place uh, of, of Western society, yeah, of the Western mm. genre. Wow, that's amazing. And now that we know that you love the trilogy, why did you choose to present the House of Bernardo Alba this time? Uh, that's... Uh, that, that that's that's a great question. As I said, like you know, um, I've, I've been fascinated by um, by the universe and the themes of Garcia Lorca, but particularly in the House of Bernardo Alba, I think Lorca explores the the force of oppression. He explores the conflict between individual freedom, individual desires, and societal conventions and conformity, that's these things that always fascinated me, this concept. Uh, he also like explored the, the clash between modernity and tradition and, you know, explores the, the destructive nature of the decaying traditions. I think that's that's so important. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, again, like that, what, you know, I connect uh, with uh, Lorca as an uh, Iranian uh, born theater artist, because exactly like, you know, what is happening in my country is a struggle between between the, uh, the modernity, modernity and tradition. Uh, and I think this is exactly, it's a very important concept. It's a very important theme in most of like Lorca's plays that, um, yeah, you know, all these things, this is happening in this, it belongs to a, like a data traditions. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, uh, Lorca himself was as a victim of that uh, deadly and decade um, uh, traditions as being a homosexual. Uh, he had to deal, he had to fight, he had to just confronted that society constantly because it's his time that he was, it wasn't accepted at all. Uh, so yeah, the societal mm -hmm. law and uh, yeah, it's amazing how it prevents the freedom of, of individual. Mm -hmm. That's something really fascinates me about both like blood wedding and, and how the house of Bernard Alba. If I understand correctly, he wrote these on the precipice of the civil war exactly. in Spain. Exactly. Yeah, and that's such a potent time. Yeah. You know, it was, um, yeah, six months after he wrote the piece, he was executed. He was assassinated, basically, by the, by the Francos, you know, the right-wing, you know, regime. And yeah, so, you know, at the same time, I think in the, the House of Bernardo Alba, we, we notice it's kind of foreshadowing the appearance of fascism. Mm. What is happening in that household with, with Bernardo, it is, it is a fascist, it's a fascism. It's like, you know, and he's kind of, because, you know, when I think about it, you know, like fascism, like, you know, Nazism and you know, all these like stupid like things that are happening around the world. These leaders don't fall from the sky. 
is being created by mm. us, by the people, by the society. And I think that was, you know, you could see in that household, the way Bernardo Alba manages and tries to control the sexuality of their daughters, the freedom of their, 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 their who they are. And then you say, yeah, like I think um, Lorca was anticipating foreshadowing the appearance of, uh, of fascism. That's what I think. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> Juicy. In your history of work and in this production, a beautiful, unique characteristic of your body of work is that you work with actors of all different backgrounds and, and welcome intercultural just experience into your shows. And we're really interested on how you build semiotics into your work. Semiotics from what we understand is creating meanings beyond the verbal, like the nonverbal aspect of theater. And I'm just wondering, what is your definition of semiotics? And what's the process like of building it in your work? I know that's a huge question, but it just seems like so important. It seems like such a Sohail thing. Uh, yes, yes, it is, you know, but but yeah, thank you. It's a great question. Is that we can talk about semiotics for hours, of course. You know? Yeah. It's such a like, you know, interesting and sophisticated concept in the in the world of the theater. Yeah, like, you know, like theater, uh, semiotics is, is basically is a mythology that considers performance as a as a system of sign that creates meaning um that you know like kind of like that anything everything that happens during the performance is um is a signifier uh, and it's used to express a particular concept by the director or even by the playwright because sometimes semiotics could could, could be semiotics could be linguistic as well uh, so but basically, like, you know, everything can be treated as a sign in theater, in the staging, including costumes, props, sets, light, space or venue, uh, and even the bodies and movement of the actors. It could be a part of the semiotic because we are creating a sign. Sometimes, you know, focusing in one, one subject, one object even, and um, seeing the transformation of that object to something else that's part of the semiotics. That's um, that's the way like, you know, semiotic works. So basically like in semiotics, in, in the world of semiotics, it, it is like um, one object that doesn't, for example, a glass of water is not just a glass of water. It could be something else. For example, I give you like, you know, uh, an, an idea about this, that you have this glass of water on the table, then the the lighting designers give you like a shaft of light, like a specific isolation of that glass of water. And imagine one of the characters who's looking at this, the glass of water, that he or she could remember something, a memory, and they could hear the sound of the ocean, the sound of the waves. And all of a sudden, like that glass of water can transfer to an ocean. That That's something, you know, that, that that's a part of like, you know, an, an example of, of, of semiotics because that's a sign is not this, uh, uh, the glass of water is not necessarily always a glass of water. It's a glass of water and it is something else as well. I'll give you like um, another example. I think what is interesting in the semiotics, you know, it, it's about the transformational qualities of, of an object or of a sound or an image that is open to different interpretation by the spectators. 
because that's one thing, you know, you know, again, in semiotics is interesting. The receivers, the audience, each may have a different interpretation of a moment that's happening on a stage. And I think it's so it's not a single interpretation, as I said, like a glass of water could change to something else. I give you another example of my past production. It might be might be a little bit like, you know, interesting. Uh, it was in 1999, I directed Hamlet, my version of Hamlet. It was interesting. My, my perception of Ophelia, I had always Ophelia with a, with a red rose attached to her head, you know, to her hair, actually. And it was interesting after she died. In my version, I, what we did, we buried in the funeral, we buried the, the red rose. And Ophelia herself was a part of the procession in, in, in her own funeral. So in a sort of like burying literally the body of a person, <laughs> we buried the flower, which, you know, like had like a different meanings and different interpretation for, for, for the audience, for the receivers, for the spectators. So I think this is, I give you like a two examples of like, how you can treat, what is that? Like, you know, if it's called semiotics, it, it gives, allows you to, to look at an object, look at, uh, a, um, listen to a sound or see an image differently because it's always has a transformational quality that could move and go to something else and become something else. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, this is, you know, I, I hope that being, I've been able to explain it a little bit to you, but this is what I, I, I see in theater. And I think this is, as I said, like, you know, for example, like a glass of water can represent a sea uh, or a scarf can present a soul. A shriek of a horse um, can present death and the sound of breaking glass can uh, represent a, a violent act. Uh, so, and repetition of it, you know, just you have the, the, the breaking, the sound of the breaking glass. A few times throughout your production, the first time the audience associated with the death of a character. Second time, even you show, even you don't show that moment, you don't show that, you know, that another person is dying. Just the audience hear the sound of the breaking glass. They realize, okay, somebody else is dying or somebody else is killed, you know, is being killed. So like this, this is what I mean by it, that it has, creates different meanings, bring other layers uh, to, to, to a production, which goes beyond uh, beyond naturalism. I hope that mm -hmm. I've been able to explain a little bit the concept of, of semiotics in theater. Yeah, it's beautiful. I was like, yeah, I was thinking, it's like, I think of all the semiotics in life. It's like how you're saying, it's like, when when I was a kid, if I heard the door open after six, I knew my dad is coming home. So I already know that the door means- That's a sign, that's something. right, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, something like that. So it's pretty something that we are kind of accustomed as, as humans, and then we see it in theater, it, it creates that bond of, we're in it. We know. We feel it. That's so right. That and you know what is so interesting about it? It's not intellectual. Immediately you realize you connect with it yes. and, and create a story at the moment. Yes. And, and, you know, that's the other thing, the question I think that you had, like, you know, in what happens in House of Bernardo Alba. To be honest, I haven't decided because it's not an intellectual decision that I know I'm going to use semiotics. This is my second nature. And I think this what happens is happens in the process. When I have my the participation, full participation of my sound designer and my lighting designer, everybody there, then, you know, I start like, you know, 
playing with this and it's, it's very unconscious. Sometimes I create something and yeah, some people who are familiar with, um, with the semiotics, I said, that's very semiotic what you did. I said, really? I, <laughs> I, I don't know, is it? Yeah, because again, I don't think about it. So it's not something I plan before I go to the rehearsal process, you know, as I said, the idea of a, of a, of a flower, the red rose for Ophelia, it was just all happened in magical moment in the rehearsal process. We were just, you know, playing with it, you know, then all of a sudden I said, what about Ophelia has always been represented by a red flower. And now if she doesn't exist, what will happen? It was interesting that uh, later on in the production, we saw Hamlet holding a, a red rose and looking at it like this. Okay, yeah, this is, it, it, yeah, it really was meaningful. It was a really beautiful moment that, you know, without adding anything to the text or just like a visual element, you know, uh, that audience can connect and, and uh, follow the story differently. Mm -hmm. There's something very, like, I love, I love how it's using intuition and, and like, the mythology that you bring with you, like as an artist, like the material that you bring and your use of the word mythology, like you're creating the mythology of the world of the peace, which is so sensual. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any artists or pieces or things you look to when you're looking for inspiration? In, uh, maybe not because you say it's intention, it's, it's uh, intuitive. So it's not necessarily something you're consciously sort of trying to study, but is there any teachers of yours that have really influenced you in that direction or inspired you? Um, unfortunately, no, I've never had um, the opportunity to have a mentor in my life. Never had it uh, because I was in the, I was in a state of transition, fleeing my own country, my homeland, coming to this country. When I got here, I was a bit like older than, than usual at the theaters as a theater student at York. Yeah, I was like in my, my 30s, like early 30s, and everybody was in like in their like you know early 20s or late mm -hmm. the, the teen the teenager days, you know. So it was interesting. I never got the chance to to have a mentor to to work directly or get influenced by this by by, by a mentor. But what happened? Um, I studied a lot. I read a lot. I just, yeah, I, you know, like uh, it's called the school of Prague. The semiotic is rooted in constructualism. Bertolt Brecht and Meyerhold, these two famous like avant-garde uh, theater directors were strongly influenced by, by, by semiotics. There is, you see elements of semiotics definitely in, in, in Brecht and Meyerhold, definitely. So yeah, by studying and reading a lot, uh, because as I said, I did get a chance to have a mentor that uh, I just tried to read as much as I could, you know, and uh, I learned a lot by by reading about semiotics. Yeah, I think also the fact that you were mentioning like so much of the poetry that you find on the page, besides the play, it's like a lot of information, like all the all the poetry that you find in the in the thing that it's not translated visually, you have like translated, adapted visually. Absolutely, absolutely. Funny. And I think that's it. Like, you know, I remember, um, especially when I was directing Blood Wedding, I just, I, I, I was reading constantly Lorca's poetry. It was not connected to the piece, but I needed to, to read and, and, and understand his universe. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like the whole concept of the horses, like the image of horses constantly like in all of him, most of his poetry, like horses, 
they're there, they exist, you know. And the concept of death, it's like death is everywhere in, in Lorca's play, as if like he was foreshadowing his own death as well. He was very young that he was executed by, by, by the Franco's, you know, regime. So like, you know, yeah, you're right. A lot of those elements, the semiotic elements, the signs and, uh, ideas like coming from from his poetry yeah yeah so so rich the world <laughs> we read a really beautiful article in intermission magazine which had some amazing pictures sohail oh my gosh <laughs> Thank please you. like anyone who wants to see some amazing pictures of sohail sohail's cat please check out the intermission <laughs> article um and in that article you said that your current dream is to work as a freelance director what kind of projects would you like to work on now that you're a freelance director? There are many plays that I've been um, dreaming to direct, uh, you know, in the past 32 years when I was at the AD Artistic Director of Modern Times. But uh, of course, at Modern Times, for um, a budgetary restriction, uh, I was limited to one production a year. So uh, I couldn't do more than one production a year. And while I had all these ideas, all these plays in my head um, that I wanted to direct, as I said, like, you know, I, I couldn't just do one Lorca <laughs> uh, one year, like, you know, and then it, because it's like a big, big, big cast, it would be would have been very expensive for the company, small company to, to constantly, you know, produce like big show, you know, like big, big cast, you know, productions. So that's why I have a lot, I have a lot of ideas. I have a lot of plays that I would love to, to, to direct. Um, so I, I hope, I hope I would get the chance to direct some of my dream plays and dream projects uh, in other theater in this, uh, city in this and other cities in this country. I think I would like to offer a different look at the classics. You know, I love the classics. I grew up with the classics. I'm fascinated by the classics. And so, uh, yeah, that, that's my dream. Hopefully, I'll get this opportunity to direct in for other theaters in this country. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to see it. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've talked about Lorca's positioning around fascism and like the creative um, kind of diving into some archetypes or, that live in that experience. Right now, we are all living in a moment of just global upheaval and unrest and militarism. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the role of art and theater. If you have any thoughts and on what you see in this moment right now, theatrically. Yeah, it's just a great question. Like, obviously, uh, the state of the world and what is happening is really disturbing, and uh, it's it's like looks like a nightmare. It sounds like a nightmare. What is happening? I myself, you know, as you mentioned, I witnessed a revolution um, and experienced an ideological fundamentalist regime back home, back in in in, in late seventies. And that that have had a profound impact uh, on my uh, my political and philo uh, uh, philosophical view as a theater artist, and has raised some major questions for me. Like you know, over the years as a theater artist, and some of those like you know question has been 
manifested has been appeared in my my in most of my productions. Yeah, as I said, it's witnessing that that bloody revolution, that ideological regime, that the sacrifice, like you know, thousands the lives of thousands and thousands of Iranians, but, uh, you know, that created this this big question in my head. You know, for example, um, does a person, for example, need one exclusive identity? Because this is somehow like you know when it comes to the revolution in Iran, it was all about identity. Uh, that my uh, like you know that uh, because it was a religious you know revolution, so they were talking about their Islamic that Muslim identity. Then you know that was my question. That that question has started from that point. Does a person need an exclusive identity? Why are we uh, passionately attached to our birthplace, ethnicities, religious or national identities? Uh, these questions has always like been been with me. Uh, if, even we have uh, you know like you know identities that even just we inherited them and not chosen them. You know that's a big question for me. For example, another question is like what what makes someone your enemy? Right now, look at the Ukraine situation. Who is the enemy? Like why? Like what is this? All of a sudden, a nation become your enemy, <laughs> and who creates that enemy? What does it mean to fight or die for one's religious or political ideology? What is that? You know, as you say, like, there's a lot of question. I, as an artist, I don't have an answer. I refuse to prescribe or have a prescription for humanity and say, this is the way of, of you. You have to just, you know, live. This is my way of, this is my, my prescription for humanity. I don't have that one. As an artist, when I see this, this violence, this um, this historical cycle of war and uh, intolerance and violence is happening. I, I have all these questions, and um, and I don't have a, like a clear answer for any of them. But uh, but I allow myself as an artist to ask the questions. Right. Uh, so yeah, like you know. That, that's my position with, with what is happening around the world, which is very, as I said, disturbing. It is, is, is look like a nightmare. And I'm not sure, like, you know, how long, you know, humanity will continue like this. And sometimes, you know, people ask me, like, you know, if I believe in humanity in the future, I said, look, you know, um, to be honest, like in the short term, I'm not an um, optimist. You know, I don't think so. In the long term, maybe like you know three four hundred years down the road maybe something positive happened but in short term i'm a little bit disappointed i refuse to give false hope to you know as a as a theater artist that's another thing i want to say i refuse to give false hope to 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 people to my audience oh there's going to be beautiful things are going to change oh yes i trust humanity but my understanding what i'm trying to say as long as humanity insists it's, it's, you know, stupidity. <laughs> I don't think that we will see uh, a bright light at the end of the tunnel pretty soon. Uh, we have a long way to go as humanity. Sorry, that could be like very positive. No. <laughs> You're not here to give false hope, as you said. And those questions that you asked are so beautiful. Yes, we just question them. I think that's the best thing is like, why are you just subscribing to something and not orally question everything? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it comes here exactly was talking about um, the house of Bernardo Alba. Like, the question, what is this? What? Is, because genuinely, Bernarda is not a fascist. She's she she loves her daughter, daughter. She loves him, but she thinks that's the right thing to do. And then we say, okay, what is this? Like, what what is this with that concept of honor, family honor? Why? Where it's coming from? 
again, is associated with those like, you know, rotten traditions of the past. What is this? Why like a mother could, you know, stuff like having an answer at the end, the question of why a mother could do this to her loved ones, to her daughters. Why? What is this? And I think that question, I think it's the most important one. Instead of like having something, a statement at the end, for example, in a, like a pedestrian way, oh, no, he, she, she's a fascist. It's not, it's not going to help us. It's not. I think the audience is like, what is it? Like, am I treating my child like that? Am I treating other, like, not just my child, like other, like, you know, the, the way people treat, like, you know, the, 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 the LGBTQ community, the gay and lesbian, like, what is this coming, where is coming from? Yeah. Where are these, like, attitudes coming from? So I think that the question, I think it's important, like, is it rooted in our, our like, you know, traditions? the decade traditions, what is that? And I think that's it. Like, you know, in a stuff like having a, a prescription or answer for everything question and let the audience go with that question and think about it. And perhaps something may happen. It reminds me, um, there's a Bell Hooks quote where she says, without justice, there can be no love, <laughs> which is just, that's amazing. you know, yeah. but like you're saying, this mother's love can turn into this violence. Yeah. yeah like, where's the justice in that? And then therefore, where is truly the love in that? Like, however you want to define love. That's, that's exactly, yes, that's mm -hmm. very true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, we can't wait to see this production. <laughs> oh my so God, excited. thank you. <laughs> oh, and speaking about questions, every episode we ask our current guests to post a question to the next guest. So we can keep the conversation going. Right. We wanted to ask you if you could ask a question to our next guest who is an artist based in the Americas, why would you ask them? If you're a theater artist, why you have chosen theater? Why not film? And what makes this art form so unique to you or for you? That's a great question. I can't wait to ask it. Uh, if you want to hear the answer, you can listen to the next episode and you'll hear someone respond to that. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to hear that. Yeah. Thank you so much for speaking to us. It was so great. Thank you so much. Thank you to you and Aluna Theater for all the great work you've been doing. And uh, thank you. Thank you for everything. All the best. And we'll see you soon somewhere. somewhere. See you at the theater. The House of Bernarda Alba by Federico Garcia Lorca is on stage from April 6th to the 24th at Buddies and Bad Times Theater, directed by Solheil Parza and starring Beatriz Pisano as Bernarda. The theater will have a seating capacity of less than 50%, ranging from 40 to 80 available seats per performance, so you can choose which performance is best for you. Links for more information and to purchase tickets will be in the show notes. We hope to see you there! We are speaking to you from the shores of this beautiful Zaga Egan, known to some as Lake Ontario, in Toronto, or Dagorondo. This is the ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee or Longhouse Confederacy, the Anishinaabek Nation, the Wendat, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. This land is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum and Treaty 13, also known as the Toronto Purchase. At Aluna, we remember that people can begin to heal when they are hurt. We are committed to artful participation in disagreements. We are committed to unsettling ourselves towards connection, respect, and justice for all people who now live in this city, which has been a meeting place since time immemorial. Radio Aluna Teatro is produced by Aluna Theatre with support from the Toronto Arts Council, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Department of Canadian Heritage, 
and TD Bank. Aluna Theater is Beatriz Pisano and Trevor Shellness. Radio Aluna Theater is produced by Monica Garrido and Camila Diaz Varela. For more about Aluna Theater, visit us at alunatheater.ca, follow at Aluna Theater on Twitter or Instagram, or like us on Facebook. Miigwech and Nyawangoa. <laughs>